0: Let's continue our worship of the incarnate Christ by turning to Zephaniah. The natural question would be at this time, at what point is this guy going to get off the mind of prophets and get to the the real thing that's going on right now, which is Christmas? Well, friends, I'm uh, pleased to tell you uh, that we celebrate Christ just as effectively from the book of Zephaniah uh, as we can from the book of Matthew or Luke. So, Good luck finding it. I don't know the exact page number for you. I had my ribbon set already to find the book of Zephaniah. But if it's of any help to you, it's after Habakkuk, and it's before Haggai. (laughs) As we've been doing for the last several weeks, we're continuing our study through the twelve. Uh, Some people call them the minor prophets, not because of uh, significance, but because of size, the word minor is used. And we've been preaching a a book at a time. There's three chapters here that I will be working through today. But for you to get the overall and surprising message of Zephaniah, especially when you read the first two chapters, I would point your attention to begin our time together to chapter 3, verses 14-14. And 15. Zephaniah chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion, shout, O Israel, rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord is in your midst. We shall never again fear evil. It is that time of year again where, for many of us, a certain rhythm of movies and music begin to fill our eyes and ears. It's nostalgia for sure. It's routine, but it's fun. Uh, One of uh, my wife's favorite Christmas movies, in fact, I think it is her favorite, Uh, constantly repeats this line. And I have a feeling that for many of you, if I actually start the line, at least half of you will be able to finish it. So, I just want to give it a shot to see what happens here. The best way to spread Christmas cheer (laughs) is… Exactly what I thought. If you're not aware, that comes from the movie Elf. And um, it is no jewel of the gospel by any means. (laughs) But it is a fun movie to watch. So, we saw it again the other day and… Um, I was uh, rather struck freshly by uh, the exuberance of this uh, grown man who thinks he's an elf and his bravery in wanting to sing at any and all times. You know, he just, his mission is to spread uh, Christmas cheer. And he thinks that singing is, is what's actually going to do that. In fact, the whole movie, if you've ever seen it, is actually about spreading cheer through singing. The The big climactic moment. Sorry to give it away. At the end is uh, everybody starts singing and it saves Santa Claus and Christmas and that kind of thing. And uh, again, it's fun on a superficial level. But there is, I'm not a movie critic, but there is a shallowness to it that's like, really? It's just about singing? You know, as long as we sing this time of year, you know, we can have this this joy, this exuberance, this excitement that we're all longing for if we really want to experience uh, the greatness of Christmas. Uh, just belt it out. And, and we know that there is uh, something hollow in that. There is something lacking. I, I sense it every year. I, I do enjoy Christmas songs, both sacred and secular. And I always get this like, uh, like Blue Monday feeling, like the day after Christmas when I know I'm not supposed to listen to those songs anymore. They, whatever happened in the month of December leading up to the 25th can't sustain me past it. It's what comes up must come down. And yet in in this text in Zephaniah, we actually have a call for singing, a call for rejoicing, a call for gladness, but one that isn't so easily manipulated by the nostalgia of a cultural holiday. He's rooting it in something deep, something profound, and please don't let this scare you, but something rather dark. He calls for you to shout with with joy, with everything you've got. And his source isn't in the things that you would think would produce it. It isn't in good food. It isn't in parties. It it isn't in uh, favorite tunes of years gone by. It isn't in gifts. He roots it in something surprising. And that is in the judgment and the joy of God. It's a little weird. You can imagine a book dedicated to the judgment of God. You can imagine, well, at least a psalm dedicated to the joy of God. But to find both of them in the same passage, in the same book, are rather stunning. And yet... It is indeed the prophetic theme. Zephaniah, you can tell if you flip back to chapter 1, is an experienced prophet of the Lord. He's someone with a unique upbringing. He actually had some insight into uh, the leadership of the day. Some prophets were kind of like these rogue outcast type of individuals. Here's a guy who actually kind of grew up in the political milieu of Judah. It says in verse 1 that the word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, and then it's going to give his um, background, the son of Cushi, the son of Gedaliah, the son of Amariah, the son of Hezekiah. That's a king, King Hezekiah. In the days of Josiah, another king, the son of Ammon, the king of Judah. What this, uh, this, these few little words are letting us know is that Zephaniah has been around. He knows how things work, uh, at least in the political realm of the place in which he serves in Judah. And you're going to not be surprised by this. Uh, Things are not going that great in Judah. Now, if you've been following our study up to this point, normally things aren't going well in Israel. The, the northern kingdom, they're like the red-headed stepchildren, it seems. They can never really get their act together. And there's these indications that Judah is, you know, they're on the right track. God's actually going to bless them. But as you work your way through the twelve, you begin to understand that even Judah begins to slip. And so what had happened after King Hezekiah where there were three really bad kings and they led people to all forms of idolatry and syncretism, the mixing of religion, and and things were bad. And Josiah, who actually is listed as one of those good kings, comes to the throne at age eight years old and he's kind of nurtured along, but Zephaniah starts prophesying at about the same time that Josiah gets on the throne And the reforms that he will introduce to Judah haven't yet taken hold. So what's going to happen is Josiah's going to do some work on his executive end, if you will. And God's going to use Zephaniah on the prophetic end to try to call the nation back to, and this is a very simple thing that God wants of them and of us, wholehearted allegiance to Yahweh. Not split, not divided, wholehearted allegiance to Yahweh. You're going to see that throughout the book But he's going to do this in a way that is rather unique. He's going to give three appeals to this wholehearted allegiance to the Lord. And the first two center around judgment. And the last one centers around joy. So if you're taking notes, we're going to look at the appeal from time. That's chapter 1, verse 2, to chapter 2, verse 3. And then we'll look at the appeal from totality. That's chapter 2, verse 4, to chapter 3, verse 8. And then we'll look at the appeal from joy, chapter 3, verse 9, to the end of the book. And so, let's notice these appeals. Wholehearted allegiance, this is where joy can be found. But the way that he appeals for wholehearted allegiance uh, is rather ominous. He first begins with this appeal for time. He says, Look, the time is short. The day is coming in which you better profess allegiance wholly to Yahweh, or it'll be too late. Look in your Bible at chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. It's cataclysmic what's prophesied here. I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and the rubble with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm reading that and I'm thinking, well, there's not much hope here. It sounds like God is undoing creation. It's like he's undoing everything that he said that he would do. In fact, he not only starts with that note in this first appeal, but he ends with it. Look at uh, chapter 1, verse 18. He says, or let's start at verse 17. I will bring distress on mankind so that they shall walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of the Lord and the fire of his jealousy. All the earth shall be consumed for a full and sudden end, and he will make of all the inhabitants of the earth. Now, friends, I hope you understand something here. What he is actually trying to do for the people of Judah is say, hey, it's all going to come to an end. This is what he will call in other parts, the day of the Lord is approaching, the day in which God finally and fully pours out his punishment upon all who are evil. You better get ready. It is a real day. The reason you know that he's emphasizing this day is because he's going to keep mentioning the word day or time or moment over and over again in this. He wants you to get that there is actually a moment on your calendar Not just God's, but like there will be a day and a time in which God will intervene and he will finally punish all wicked. It will not be just some general abstract thing that could or may happen one day. It is a real event, as real as your next dental appointment. Be ready. He's specifically... Warning those in Judah who have this tendency to not only be idolatrous, you see that in verse 4, I will stretch out my hand against Judah, against all the enemies of Jerusalem. I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal and the name of the idolatrous priests along with the priest, those who bow down on roofs to the host of heavens, those who bow down and swear to the Lord and yet swear by Milcom. So verse 4 talks about idolatry. Verse 5 talks about Uh, Syncretism. That's when you mix together uh, the true God, the worship of the true God, with other things. I just saw this um, two weeks ago uh, when I was in Africa. Uh, It's not difficult at all to actually present Jesus uh, to the Togolese. They're very excited about the prospect of one who will rescue them from their sin and give them eternal life. The tough thing is for them to forsake their literal idols. That's why the missionaries there before they baptize will not baptize until the individual burns all of their idols publicly. There are pastors in the country even today who will preach the gospel but still visit the witch doctor to try to look out for ways that their church can be more successful. Now I know that sounds ridiculous to you. And yet syncretism is always on the lips and tongue and heart of those uh, who can claim to know Jesus. Those who say, oh, I love Jesus, I, I want to worship him, and they give him Sunday, but then every other day of the week they are serving themselves, or they are serving money, or they are serving sensual pleasure. God says, I hate this, and there will be a day on the calendar in which I will fully and finally eradicate those who are devoted to this kind of syncretism. That's why I said wholehearted allegiance, not partial You can't just say, I think, uh, one thumb up for Jesus, or even two thumbs up for Jesus. It has to be exclusive allegiance to the one true God of the Bible. He says, there's a day to remedy this. And then he mentions another group in verse 6, those who have turned back from following the Lord, who do not inquire the Lord or inquire of Him. There's just the rebellious, those who say, I don't give a rip, I'm just going to do my own thing, I don't care about Yahweh. But now notice how he keeps mentioning the day, the day, the day. Uh, Verse 7, be silent before the Lord God, for the day... The day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice and consecrated his guests. And on the day of the Lord's sacrifice, Paul's, notice he says, on this day, there's going to be this sacrifice. And you're expecting a sacrifice to be like a celebration. But there's going to be a surprise here. Because he says, on this particular day, with this particular sacrifice, it won't be an animal that's sacrificed. It'll be the guest's. It'll be those in attendance. Notice, and on the day of the Lord's sacrifice, I will punish the officials and the king's sons and all who array themselves in foreign attire. On that day, I will punish everyone who leaps over the threshold and those who fill their master's house with violence and fraud. Uh, Just a note, jumping over the threshold may seem rather strange to you. Why would we judge anyone for that? He's just basically that's a superstition that was employed in the day. We saw it uh, back in 1 Samuel chapter 5 uh, where the Philistines would not step on the threshold of the temple of Dagon because the statue had fell on top of it. The point is, look, those who were given to these uh, supernatural, uh, excuse me, these mystical, idolatrous Um, idiosyncrasies and habits, uh, they're going to suffer on this day. Those who do violence, those who do fraud, they'll suffer on this day. Look at verse 10. On that day, declares the Lord, a cry will be heard from the fish gate, a well from the second quarter, a, a loud crash from the hills. He's basically talking about specific places in Jerusalem that will be judged. Verse 11 mentions the same. You go to verse 12, and he says, at that time, I will search Jerusalem with lamps. I will punish the men. And listen to this one. Here is another person who should be concerned on the day of the Lord. I will punish those who are complacent. Not just the actively idolatrous, not just the syncretistic who are kind of mixing it all together. This particular day of punishment is particularly for those who are just kind of, meh. It it, it even fills in their words, those who are complacent those who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good, nor will He do ill. Have you ever thought about that as a category of, of someone who actually deserves the active and ongoing wrath of God? The person's like, I don't really mind God, He's okay, but He doesn't really do that much for me. He doesn't really punish me uh, when I do wrong, and I don't really see much benefit from doing right, so I… I mean, I'm not against them. I'm not really for them. I'm just, I'm just kind of in between. It's that same category of person that um, in the book of Revelation, when uh, Jesus is speaking of the seven churches, he speaks specifically of the Laodiceans, uh, and he mentions uh, that they were neither hot nor cold, and it makes him want to vomit them out of his mouth. God hates complacency. And then, when you see what this day is like for those people, it just reminds you over and over again this is real. It says in verse 13 that they'll experience this temporal judgment of doing work. It says, Their goods shall be plundered, but their houses are laid waste. They shall build houses, but not inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards, they shall not drink wine from them. Basically, he's talking to the futility that they'll experience. And then he's going to talk about, notice, the great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. A day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. Notice he keeps saying a day, a day, a day. There is a point in time in which God will come and punish. Now he is specifically, let's take a theological time out for a second. He is specifically referring to a real event called the day of the Lord. But the day of the Lord isn't limited to one event on the calendar. We learned from our study in the book of Joel that God will declare the day of the Lord is any time where he radically invades the world to correct wrong and celebrate that which is right. One of the most common expressions of the day of the Lord in the Old Testament, for example, was when some foreign army would be supernaturally empowered by God to come and kick Israel or Judah's butt. It was a real day. It would happen. It was a warning to them about a greater day to come. And yet, almost every time, That God mentions this temporal day of the Lord, He also uses it as an indicator of a cataclysmic cosmic day of the Lord in which the whole earth is undone. That's why verses two and three start off with this undoing of creation, and then verse eighteen talks about the fire of God's indignation being poured upon the entire world. All these events that God orchestrates to punish people in time are reminders of the real day that He has to come, and so in. of this, the prophet gives an appeal. Are you ready for it? There's a real time in which this is going to happen. Uh, This is is a a limited time offer for you to repent and make things right with him. And look at verses 1 through 3 of chapter 2. Here's the appeal. Gather together, yes, gather together, O shameless nation, before the decree takes effect. Before the day passes away like chaff, before there comes upon you the burning anger of the Lord, before there comes upon you the day of the anger of the Lord, seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, who do His just commands, and seek righteousness, and seek humility. And perhaps, perhaps, you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. He's saying, "Uh, guys, this is a limited time offer. You better get on it where you can it says, seek the Lord, seek His ways, and do it while you can. You've probably seen uh, before, if you've ever had the misfortune of not being able to go to sleep, staying up late at night and watching infomercials. I don't. They're just <laughs> you're more susceptible at that time of night to watch those things. And thankfully, I don't think I've ever ordered anything off of an infomercial, so they're not that effective. But I have felt the temptation to do so, especially when they tell me that I need to order now because this is a limited-time offer. You know that's actually, that is a a real tactic. We will delay things if we don't think that they actually need to be done. Um, How many of you have ever bought a Groupon before online? Groupon did an experiment uh, just a few years ago uh, timing when people used their offers. Uh, there were two different categories of when the things were actually used. One was when the person first bought it because they really, really wanted the thing. And then there would be this period of inactivity where nobody would redeem the offer. And then all of a sudden in the last week, the offer spikes again because people realize they're going to miss out on the opportunity. You know, God is kind enough here to warn us ahead of time that uh, this offer expires. You do not have forever. Though the grace of God is unlimited in its application, it is not unlimited in its availability. Friends, we do well to remember this. This is a principle throughout Scripture. Isaiah 55, six says it this way, Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call on Him while He is near. Even Paul in the New Testament says this to the church at Corinth. They had been exposed to his teaching before, but some of them had not yet, like, professed wholehearted allegiance to Jesus. And he says, in a favorable time, I listen to you, and in a day of salvation, I have helped you, quoting Isaiah. And then he applies it to the Corinthians. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Uh, he's appealing for us to be, like, all in on the Lord, and he's saying, you need to do it Now. Look, I don't care if you are a teenager or if you are a first-time guest or if you've been in this church building or many others hundreds of other times and you have yet to fully profess faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, time is limited. And I know that you think you have more time. And yet the warning from God, not just some uh, secular marketing expert, but the actual word from God is today, is the day. Of salvation. Why delay? Give it all to Him. Be all in. Stop trying to mix things. Stop your complacency. Repent of that. You better turn to Him before that day comes. It is a real day. For, you know, it's, this is, there are, there are blessings and burdens to this job. Let me tell you one of the burdens. Is having to think about. I couldn't. I can't. There are nights this week where I couldn't sleep because I was thinking about the day of judgment and what it would be like for some of you to face it apart from Christ. Like it is. It is real. And I know, and I confess this, I've already confessed it to the Lord, I'll confess it to you. I know sometimes I preach as if like, hey, take your time, you know, just think carefully about what it means to follow Jesus. But there are some times in which I just need to say, now may be the time. There was a point in time in which I would get angry at the evangelist who would warn of the person who would get in the random car accident, you know, on the way home from church because they didn't receive Jesus and they had their last moment. Listen, I'm not into that kind of fear-mongering. All I'm trying to tell you is that it's a real day, it's coming, and you better act while there is time. There's the appeal from time. There's also the appeal from totality. Zephaniah continues his appeal for wholehearted allegiance. And it builds on what he just said. Look at uh, verse 4. Notice the word for. It's a connective. He's saying, look, in light of what I just said, there's something else that I want you to consider about this wholehearted allegiance. And that is, God will fully and finally correct all who rebel against him, not just some. And here's what happens here. I'm actually not going to read all these verses for time. You can. But in the next few verses, he is going to show that the judgment of God on that day will be exhaustive. Everybody who deserves it will get it. And he does this in a way that is similar to what uh, the book of uh, Amos did uh, formerly. Uh, Basically, he covers the directions of the compass around Jerusalem saying, hey, these people are going to experience my judgment, and these people are going to experience my judgment, and these people and these people. In verses 4 to 7, the enemies from the west will be eradicated. Uh, In verses 8 through 11, the enemies from the east will be eradicated. Uh, In chapter 2, verse 12, enemies from the south will be eradicated. And then in chapter 2, verses 13 to 15, he hits the enemies from the north. They'll be eradicated. And basically he's saying, nobody will escape this judgment. You may think that you know a way around it, but you can't. All of these people will get it. And then, just as he did in the book of Amos, he's going to do it again here and say, and you're getting it too. It isn't just the foreign nations. It's also you. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. He continues the pronouncements of judgment. And who does he end up with? Not just the foreigners, but woe to her who is rebellious and defiled, the oppressing city. She listens to no one. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to her God. And in verses 1 through 8, God is specifically calling out the city of Jerusalem. Uh, He is making it clear that there is no one who can escape this. You will get caught up in this too. It isn't just about time. It's about totality. No one escapes it. It makes me think of this this place in my hometown, or right outside of my hometown, in which uh, pretty much everyone gets a speeding ticket. In fact, I just thought of this, the first speeding ticket I ever got was at this particular road. It was in between uh, the actual main town and this little township called Winterville, and the speed limit there, for whatever reason, I have no clue, is 20 miles per hour. And all of us know better. It should be 35. And yet, all of us who do know better get caught every time. They're, I mean, like, I don't know of anyone that has actually been able to get away with it. The, the police have figured out this is the sweet spot. And, and, and they park it there. And you know, if you've been around long enough, you're like, you know what? I just, that, if there are places where I can push the limit, this isn't it. I'm going to obey You know, once we start to understand that, you know, there are certain things in which nobody gets away with them. There is no leeway. Uh, Everyone who experiences this or that uh, receives what they deserve. Like, you kind of wake up to things, and that's exactly how this text is functioning. He's saying to Jerusalem, look, they're going to get it, and 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 you— we're going to get it. No one will escape. Therefore, profess allegiance to the Lord. And here's the most, I think, stunning part of this appeal. Look in verses 6 to 8. God even tells them that I did this to all these other nations so that you would know that I'm going to do it to you too. He says, I have cut off nations, their battlements are in ruins, I have laid waste their streets so that no one walks in them. Their cities have been made desolate, without a man, without an inhabitant. I said, surely you will fear me. You will accept correction. I was hoping you would learn from them. Then your dwelling would not be cut off according to all that I have appointed against you. But all the more they were eager to make all their deeds corrupt. He says, I tried to warn you. I tried to show that I was going to show judgment to these people as well, and you just continue. In our own culture, we celebrate this kind of stubbornness. It's almost an American virtue. It's even received a new name in social studies in recent years. It's not very technical, but it is effective. It's called grit. Grit. They think that people who have grit are the ones who are ultra successful. They know how to get the job done. In fact, there are books under that same title. And yet, um, uh, what we would call grit and some kind of grace, God says, is uh, the key to uh, divine condemnation. Your stubbornness, your rebellion will destroy you. Notice verse 8. He says, look, if you're going to do that, here's what you need to know. Verse 8, therefore, wait for me. Says the Lord. Now, I'll pause for a moment. When he says, "Wait for me," this isn't like you know Romeo and Juliet meeting out in the courtyard somewhere. When he says, "Wait for me," he says, "Wait for it. Judgment's coming. You will experience this." He's appealing back to what he said earlier. Therefore, wait for me. Verse eight declares the Lord for the day. When I rise up to seize the prey, for my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning anger, for in the fire of my jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. He's saying, Look, it's going to happen. That's what you're waiting for. You're waiting for me to pour out judgment. You better make things right now. This is an appeal. Friends, we learned two valuable lessons here. And if if you're taking notes, this might be worth writing down and reflecting upon, if not for yourself, for someone else. No one is excluded from God's righteous judgment. And lack of religious upbringing is no excuse. No one is excluded from God's judgment. And a lack of religious upbringing is no excuse. Do you know why he calls out all these nations? They didn't have a prophet. They didn't have a copy of God's word, but he still says that they rebelled against me. There is this mindset that is prevalent in American evangelicalism that says, "Oh, you know what? Uh, God's going to take care of saving the heathen, and He's going to take care of you know like those people who don't understand." In fact, Billy Graham was a proponent of this late in life, where he said, "If people haven't actually heard the message of the gospel, they'll have another chance at some point after death to receive Christ if they so desire." Do you know what this text is saying? That's hogwash. That ain't happening. Like, they're actually accountable. I don't care if you grew up in church or not. Like, the reason why, like, the mission of this church should be to reach the nations with the gospel is because they're still on the hook whether they hear it or not. doesn't matter if they don't have exposure. This is an urgent thing. We need to warn them of that. We need to send people. We need to stay mobilized in that. It isn't just some novel thing that Christians do. Eternity is on the line. No one is excluded from God's righteous judgment. Lack of religious upbringing is no excuse. But may I add another word? No one is excluded from God's righteous judgment. Religious upbringing is no defense. Religious upbringing is no defense. It would be easy for you to sit in here today and think, oh, he's droning on about the judgment that all the bad people are going to face. I mean, after all, I'm here in church this morning. Do you know who he's speaking to? He's speaking to the nation of Judah, the city of Jerusalem. These are God's chosen people. These are the ones that he, with great miracle and pomp and circumstance, had preserved up to this very point. These are the same people that he promised would have a lineage through David forever. And they're thinking, hey, we're fine. We're fine. We're, we're, We're on the right team. And he's telling them, no, you're not if your allegiance isn't totally in Yahweh and Yahweh alone. It would be so simple for you to think that I'm at church at Christmas time and I do good religious things. Look, it is exclusive allegiance that is called for here. Evaluate your own heart. This is a real judgment. Do you notice in the New Testament, especially, that Jesus is harshest with the religious types? In fact, it's the people who don't really know that much about the Bible that he's very tender with and he's very gentle, but like he turns it on for those who have had maximum exposure to good and godly things because it would be the most easy for them to take it for granted. In fact, he says that the judgment of those who have had repeated exposures to the gospel is actually going to be worse than for those who have never heard. And this is the the appeal. The appeal from the prophet is, look, look, there's the argument from time. It's going to happen. There's the argument from totality. No one is excluded. No one. These first two appeals have been largely ominous. But the final appeal is stunningly, and I don't use that word loosely, it is stunningly optimistic. The final appeal is the appeal from joy, the appeal from joy. So he's appealed from time, judgment's coming. He's appealed from totality, everybody's going to get it if they deserve it. And then it's almost, now I understand why liberal scholars sometimes try to say that people wrote different books and compiled them together at some point, because you look at this and you're like, this doesn't sound like the same guy. But it is indeed the divine message. And what happens here is He's going to appeal to them from the positive. He's going to give them this message of ultimate hope. Now, I want to just note something for you that as you're you're reading the book of Zephaniah, if if you've read it at all, uh, you're going to notice that there have actually been these little breadcrumbs of hope throughout. Like, He isn't actually saying you know, that everybody and their mama and their children is going to experience God's judgment. He is actually referring to a specific group of people, and he holds out for a group that may be able to escape God's judgment. Uh, We saw that back in, for example, chapter 1 verse, or excuse me, chapter 2 verse 3. He says, hey, some of you will gather together, and perhaps the Lord will show you grace. Perhaps he'll spare you. Uh, Notice uh, down in chapter 2 verse 7, if you're just kind of reviewing, he talks about uh, the, the punishment of those in the West. And, but notice what he says about his own people in verse 7. The sea coast shall become the possession of the remnant of the house of Judah, on which they shall graze. And in the houses of Ashkelon they shall lie down at evening, for the Lord their God will be mindful of them and restore their fortunes. So it's not all doom and gloom. You're reading this carefully and you're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. whoa. It seems that there is some group of people who are going to experience God's grace in a special way and it's here that we learn who that group of people will be. God indeed will pour out his judgment, but he will also pour out his grace. Look at verse 9, and this is a great positive note for us to end our study on today. Verses 9 through 20, but let's start at verse 9. For at that time, after I pour out my climactic judgment, at that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech. These are the nations. These are the the pagans, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord. There will be a group who will be able to call on God's name and serve him with one accord. They're going to do it together. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones shall bring offering. Oh, this is crazy. God is holding out the hope that uh, those pagans who are going to experience his judgment, that some of them will actually experience his grace. He even mentions uh, the land beyond Cush, which is fascinating because Cush is modern-day Egypt. He's talking about the land beyond the Nile. He's talking about modern-day Africa. Uh, You know, when most people think of missions, they think of Africa. It is amazing to see that the fulfillment of this promise is already in some ways taking place today as the Word of God has spread to deep, dark places unknown. He says, there's going to come a time in which God is going to pour out special judgment, and on the other side of that, there will be grace. Now, you're wondering, when is this time of judgment, and what does this grace look like? We'll get there. Notice also, though, that it's not just for the pagans and the foreigners, but it's also for God's people. Look at verses 11 to 13. On that day you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For then I will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. Uh, you ever wrestle with pride? You ever think like, man, will, will I ever be able to overcome this? God says, I'm just going to remove pride from my people. It's going to be gone forever. And verse 12, I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. Those who are left in Israel... They shall do no justice and speak no lies, nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue, for they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. This is amazing. Because what we have here is on the heels of divine judgment, there will be a group of people who actually enjoy God and His ways. How in the world does that happen? Well, remember that the, the day of the Lord is, um, is portrayed for us in moments in time that have already happened, and there's a climactic display. Well, we know from previous studies in uh, the Minor Prophets especially that one of those expressions, the penultimate expression of the day of the Lord was when God poured out His wrath upon His Son. He endured the full wrath of God, satisfying God's justice for all who would truly believe. And on the hills of that, there is a purification and an inclusion. It is the establishment of a church. No longer is it just the ethnic Israelite. Now there would be more who would be included. He would actually purify them in a way that the old covenant never could. Remember, the old covenant can never touch the heart, and yet now God has actually affected us in our hearts. There has been a restoration that is full, and yet we all know we still struggle with sin, and we all know that there are more people who need to be saved. There is an initial fulfillment and a climactic fulfillment. We are still awaiting the fullest and most final fulfillment of this promise, and that is for God to save all of his elect and to fully sanctify them, purging them of all the sin that they wrestle with and struggle with in this life. As you start lining up the list of uh, New Year's resolutions and all the things that you want to fix about yourself, and then you're reminded inevitably of all the failures of years past, I want you to know a New Year's is coming in which everything gets done. This is the promise. He says, look, Come to me, holy, because for those who are actually um, in line with Yahweh, they will experience this great day. There is this, he's appealing to them on the basis of something positive and, and good. He has them look forward to this. But here's where things get downright mind-blowing. But you look at verse 14, and this is what we read earlier. He says, in light of this, you need to rejoice, you need to be happy. Uh, For those of you who have professed full allegiance to Yahweh, sing aloud, O daughter of Zion, shout, O Israel, rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. Now, these terms, friends, are, you know, like we read over them too much, and they just mean like, okay, just don't be sad, be glad. You know, we kind of interpret it that way. But the crazy thing is, like, this is um, the language here, and this is going to make a lot of you uncomfortable, I'm sorry, but it's loud and obnoxious. Like, he is calling for something that that many of us would uh, deem undignified. You know, the, the same language that's used here is the same language that's used to describe David's dance before the Lord, where everybody was like, he went crazy. What's he doing? The command of those who have professed wholehearted allegiance to Yahweh is that there is at least times and moments and places in which they just, like, let it loose. They, they are absolutely delighted. They cannot hold it in. He says, celebrate with all your might. Let, let your guard down. Be jubilant. Shout. The word shout there is the same word that's used of, of soldiers lining up and doing a battle cry before they rush into battle. Now, I don't think that the prophetic author had in mind the movie Braveheart, but I do think of that going on. These guys, they're lined up, they're yelling, they're chanting, and they roar into battle. That is exactly what he's saying to it. Let it loose. It's such a good thing to be all in on Yahweh. It is worthy of your celebration. Why? Verse 15 The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. Everything that you deserved in those first two chapters, you will not experience. It's gone. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. So the command here, the appeal is, hey, enjoy the Lord for the grace that He's shown you. But there's another appeal that's here. It's not only to enjoy the Lord, but it's also to endure for Him. Look at verse 16. He says, on that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, fear not, O Zion, let not your hands grow weak. That, that phrase, let your hands grow weak, is talking about someone who's weary of work. He says, look, don't, don't get weary in your work. Why? And this is amazing. Verse 17 here, many scholars have called the John 3.16 of the Old Testament. It surprises you where it shows up. Listen to this. Let the words impact you. It says... The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. The fact that the Almighty God would take joy in His creation is understandable. But the fact that He would show such extreme joy for those who had formerly rebelled against Him is near unbelievable. He says that He enjoys you. He rejoices over you. That's why they can rejoice, because they are rejoiced over The same words that are used in verse 14 about, like, making a hoopla and, like, letting it loose and that kind of thing is the same word that's used here in verse 17 for rejoice over you with gladness. What was commanded of the people is actually commended by the behavior of God. I think that some of us have this tendency to think of God as this fundamentally angry being. He's just, like, his default state is to be frustrated and yet, theologians have argued over this for centuries that the reality does point to the fact that God at His core is blessed. He is happy. Things are good. One put it this way, all is well in the happy land of the Trinity. God is happy. And what does He enjoy? Like, what does He take joy in? Like, What brings a smile to His face, anthropomorphically speaking? you not only says that he rejoices over you but it says that he will quiet you by his love the translation there would be even better rendered he is quieted by your love at what times do you uh, get quiet sometimes it could be when you're shocked Or you're confused. Maybe sometimes you're quiet when you're angry. But do do you know what it's like to be quieted out of just a sense of joy and satisfaction? Reading a book on this topic this week uh, reminded me of just a couple of really clear examples of this. I think of a couple that's been married for 50 years sitting in front of a fireplace listening for the crackling and the pop, enjoying the warmth of the fire and not saying a word to one another because they're satisfied in their relationship. I'm reminded of of the beauty of a new mother holding her little child in the stillness of the night. The crying is over and she technically could put that baby back to bed and yet she sits there in that gliding rocker and doesn't say a word. Because there's this satisfaction in the love that she has for her child. Have you ever thought about God being quieted by His love for you? Not only is He quieted, not only does He rejoice, but it says that He will exalt over you with singing. What does the voice of God sound like? I don't know. What song does he sing? I don't know. But what does he sing about? And I don't get it. But he sings about you. Those of you who have been redeemed by his son or walking with him, that you are his joy to the point of singing. Friends, think with me for a moment. When was the last time that you were so happy that you sang? Not because everybody else in the church was singing. Not because it was somebody's birthday and you were obligated to sing. I'm talking about like you were just like whistling a tune. You were just happy. Like where it just had to come out. Maybe it wasn't singing. Maybe it was the actual shouting. I tried to reflect back on moments in my life, you know, where I had actually, like, verbally articulated joy spontaneously and, like, couldn't hold it back. And, like, the sad thing was I could only think of sporting events. (laughs) Think of, like, the time I saw my son score a touchdown in a championship football game. Like, I was excited. I was yelling about that. I think I was singing to myself. I wasn't doing it in front of other people. When I was on the way home, I had an hour car ride from after I proposed to Tanya, and she said yes. And so I had to like make the drive back to Greenville, and I remember singing in the car at that point. I remember being 16 years old and shouting in the car at the top of my lungs that I had my license. <laughs> you did it too,. <laughs> Look, I don't know when your moment was, but I want you to think about that. These are are the best moments of your life. And God is saying that he does that over you? Merry Christmas. (laughs) That is a wonderful thing to consider. He not only does this, but he promises full and final restoration for his people. There are implications for Israel, of course, but for all of us who are in Christ, verses 18 to 20, I will not only celebrate you, but I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time, I will deal with all your oppressors. I will save the lame and gather the outcast. I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time, I will bring you in, and at the time when I gather you together, I will make you renowned and praised among all the people of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes. Uh, Friends, uh, the, the chapter began with, I mean, excuse me, the book began with the demolishment of the world, and it ends on another worldwide scene, but this is the world of joy, a world of celebration where through resurrected eyes, we see everything that that God has promised. And so, friends, we're invited to worship with all of our hearts, with all of our beings, with all all that we have this God, to celebrate Him. Uh, What's the best way to spread Christmas cheer? It could be, indeed, singing loud for all to hear. But about what do you sing? What is it that you actually celebrate? The assumption of Zephaniah is that, that you sing in light of the grace that God has shown you through Christ. That you get to sing because he sings over you. Which leaves us with just two very specific considerations. One, Does he indeed sing over you? He's already made it clear that some people will experience his unmitigated wrath and some people will experience his unmitigated pleasure. What is the difference between the two? It is the heart of full allegiance to Yahweh. Well, how does one ever get one of those? God in his grace and his kindness actually uses the spirit of God to point out that you are a sinner in need of his saving grace. And that same spirit points you to the beauty and the strength and the goodness of Jesus who lived righteously for you and died to satisfy God's wrath and rose again to promise predict and foretell eternal life for all who would believe in him. Uh, The people who enjoy God in this way and the people who are enjoyed of God in this way are those who have evidenced that by turning from their sin and trusting in Him alone. That's something that God has enabled in you and you can be assured today that He is rejoicing over you. But if you're still trying to mix it up, If you're still complacent, if you're still hard, if you're still in this thing all for yourself, I cannot give you that assurance. You may be the recipient of his wrath, not the recipient of his rescuing love. It is all about your orientation toward Jesus. You know, it makes me think about the moon. My kids and I stayed up late the other night to watch this eclipse, which was a huge disappointment. But... You know, you you see like the sun shining and the the moon looks so happy on the one side. And then every once in a while you can just see that edge and it just looks so dark and gloomy. Uh, What's the difference between the darkness and the light? Uh, The orientation toward the sun. Uh, Friends, if you are oriented toward God's sun, you experience the light of his favor. If you are turned away from him, you will know the darkness of his doom. Not only should we search our own hearts and whether or not we're His, but we should sing from the heart if we are indeed His. And we're wholly loved. You know, some of you can't really feel and appreciate the immensity of God's love for you because of various things. I think some of you, even if you're you're in Christ, you're like, no, I'm too guilty. You don't know the things that I've done. I I can't enjoy Christ because I have blown it big time. But I would have you remember verse 15. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. (laughs) Your sin is gone. Whatever it is that you think would prohibit you from being enjoyed by God and enjoying Him, it's been removed. It's gone. That's the person that He says, enjoy this. That's the person that He says God loves. It isn't just because of the two guilty. Maybe another obstacle for you today is enemies and adversity. You're like, Justin, you have no idea. God clearly does not really care for me that much because you don't know the hell on earth that I've walked through in the last year. You don't know the enemies that I face. You don't know the adversity that I have to endure. And yet I would remind you in verse 17, God has not abandoned you in this. He says, the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He doesn't deliver you from all your troubles in the time that you think he should do so, but he will indeed deliver. And he is still pleased. Maybe it's because of this theological notion that he's so great and and he's so big and you're so small that that could he really enjoy me? Could could he really delight in me personally? And yet we see that he is in our midst. In fact, uh, the same might that enables him to be over us is the same might that enables him to be near us, He says it over and over again in Zephaniah. Yes, I am high, I am holy, but I am near, I am with my people. And then, lastly, maybe some of you can enjoy this celebration of God over you because you're a victim or a slave of shame. I say this very sincerely. I know some of you, your parents were um, less than encouraging, to put it kindly. You've been abused, you've been misused. You have negative perceptions of your own body and image, maybe emotional struggles, and you're like, no, surely God doesn't love me. I would remind you of verse 19 in chapter 3 where it says, Behold, at that time I will deal with all your oppressors, and I will save the lame and gather the outcast, and I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. You may feel worthless now, but you are worthy, and God will enable you to experience that in that final day. And so we should sing. Martin Luther. The old Reformer is best known for his uh, courageous defense of the doctrine of justification by faith. In fact, I saw a meme this week of him nailing the 95 Thesis on the door, and it just said, nailed it. (laughs) Indeed, he was a a force to be reckoned with uh, theologically uh, in his writing, but most people uh, forget about the fact that he was also musically inclined One of Luther's enemies in the Roman Catholic Church in critiquing him insisted that Luther had damned more souls with his hymns than all his sermons. And all of us in every age are compelled to acknowledge the power of a song. And so Luther was in fact so committed to the primacy of singing in bringing about reform and for spreading the gospel and for worshiping God, he said, I have no use for cranks who despise music. Said Luther. Because it is a gift of God, music drives away the devil and makes people happy. They forget thereby all wrath, unchastity, arrogance, and the like. Next, after theology, I give to music the highest place and the greatest honor. Friends, what do we do with a message like this? I think we sing. We sing for joy because we are enjoyed by God. And if you're not sure, if you are enjoyed of Him, that you have received His special favor, please do not leave today without making that right or speaking to someone about the state of your soul. We want you to know the joy that comes from God and God alone.